Lucky episode 300, getting the right drugs developed and thinking different about how to pay for them. Today, I speak with Bruce Rector, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Wow, it's episode 300. That's a milestone. Because of you, we've grown to be one of the largest podcasts for healthcare executives. Thank you to every one of you who has recommended the show to your friends and colleagues, which is really the highest compliment. Thanks also to all the listeners of this show who have written reviews, LinkedIn posts, and sent emails. The team over here at Relentless Health Value really appreciates your kind words. They're super motivating. The emails we love to get are the ones where one of you talks about a success story, like an example where you've taken something you heard and made it actionable, how you helped patients get better care at a lower cost, or how you were able to collaborate with fellow stakeholders in a meaningful way. That's really why we're here and why it's so motivating to hear stories like this. Which brings me to a really important point. We're in this together. All of you healthcare decision maker stakeholder types out there, you who can directly affect change, it's really you who deserve the biggest rounds of applause, if I do say so. We appreciate the opportunity to kick off the activity or the decision making, but it's you all who pick up the ball and run with it. And for that, we, as both professionals and patients, thank you. Moving on to today's episode 300. My guest today, Bruce Rector, MD, is an expert on drug affordability, and he has extensively studied how to make sure we get the right drugs developed by considering innovation incentives, among other things. He's done a lot of work with Doctors for America and the Center for American Progress. He also teaches medical students pharmaceutical policy and has worked with drug companies on drug development promotion. So I felt like that was a pretty rounded perspective of the issues that I wanted to get into today. Let me tell you why I started to think about this. Any one of those stories where somebody dies of an infection that was resistant to antibiotics there are always ghastly tales that seem so unnecessary. And every time I hear one of them, I wonder why pharma companies aren't in the antibiotic business. Clearly, there's a need. Well, it turns out antibiotics are a great case study of what happens when drug companies don't have the incentive to develop drugs that are a huge need to society. Which brings me to the big hairy challenge I'm talking with Bruce Rector about today. How do you ensure that pharmaceutical manufacturers are fairly incented and compensated to develop the drugs that are of the most value to society? Orphan drugs, by the way, are a great example of what happens when incentives are put in place to develop drugs. At last count, like half the drugs developed in the past decades have been for rare diseases because of the 1983 Orphan Drug Act that made it quite profitable to develop for rare diseases. So today we dig into two, arguably three categories of incentives that are typically offered or available to pharma companies in this country today and which are frankly used in that Orphan Drug Act. The first two are push incentives and then there's pull incentives. 
push incentives are when the government generally offers incentives to reduce industry's costs during the R&D research and development stages, like they give grants or tax credits for clinical research, things like this. Pull incentives, on the other hand, are ways to guarantee demand after the drug is developed or to help the pharma company make more money on the drug, for example, by extending patent exclusivity. Like if you, pharma, develop this drug, we'll promise to buy millions of doses right up front and or we'll borrow any generics for two extra years so you get the two extra years of, of revenue. You might be thinking about what's going on with COVID right now, just saying. So we have push incentives, we've got pull incentives, and then this last one, which is more of a market condition than really anything paid up front or deliberately engineered on the back end. It's that drugs aren't like new dust chairs or some other product that if the price goes too high, your employer just doesn't buy it. If someone is suffering from a deadly disease and there's one drug for it with no competition, there's nothing and nobody in the U.S. marketplace that really has the power to hinder the pharma company from basically charging whatever they want for it. Dr. Vincent Rajkumar talks about this in episode 296 if you want to go back and listen to that one for more info. But wait, there's more I talk with Dr. Rector about today. He brings up two different ways to contemplate paying for drugs. First is the fire extinguisher model, which is really applicable to antibiotics. And we talk about a couple of things I had never thought about relative to antibiotics. And then secondly, we have the subscription model. Definitely food for thought for any of you innovative health plan types or policymakers out there. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Bruce Rector, MD, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So if we're talking about innovation in the pharmaceutical space, what's the problem that you're looking to solve? What's the issue here? Well, the issue for me is what drugs are getting developed? Are the drugs that are getting developed the drugs we most need to target unmet needs, to target disability, to target quality of life? Or are they drugs that, based on the current incentives in the system and the way the system works, are just going to make the most money for companies? And do you feel that that is currently what's going on, at least at some level? Well, there's drugs that we really desperately need right now that are not getting developed because the incentives are not there, financial incentives, to develop them. And so that's a problem. I mean, mean, the problem that sticks out and everyone talks about is antibiotics. We have a lot of antibiotic resistance. It's It's a growing concern and we're not getting new antibiotics. There's very few in development. And there's a good reason for that. Over the past decade, every antibiotic that has been launched by a company Either the company went bankrupt that brought it to market or the company that has it doesn't even say what their sales are. So there's no financial reason to develop them. There's not enough money to draw them to develop them. And we need antibiotics desperately. We need to do something to give them additional incentives to develop those drugs. On one hand, we've got headlines in the newspaper often enough talking about the fact that exactly like you said, we've got antibiotic resistance going on and there's no new antibiotics. On the other hand, it's not like pharmaceutical companies haven't been launching new products. So what are they launching instead? Is that the flip side to this, that there's so much incentive to launch other things? 
Yeah. I mean, if you are for a pharmaceutical company, your mission is value for your shareholders. That's what drives you. You also want to do social good. But your first thing is you need to drive value for your shareholders. So you look at what products are going to be the most profitable for you, give you the most revenue. And you look at the pipeline, you look at the science that's been done, and then you compare it to if you brought it to market, how would it look against other competitors? How long a time on the market would you have? How much you can charge for us? Those are parts of the decision making. In the past, we also decided we needed extra incentives for a category of drugs that weren't being developed. And those were orphan drugs. Orphan drugs are drugs, a disease that only treats less than 200,000 people. What you're talking about now is that there are drugs that needed to be developed for conditions that may not have a giant amount of patients, so potentially the incentives for treating this particular condition might not be there. And those are called, you know, as you just mentioned, orphan drugs. What we're talking about here right now is, is what may have been done to help incent those products. And I'm assuming that we're talking about this because it's kind of a, a case study that we might loop back and discuss relative to antibiotics. Yeah, for two reasons. Last year, the FDA approved 48 drugs. 21 were for orphan-designated diseases. And when you think about it, those are for diseases that treat less than 200,000 people. They aren't diseases that hit the whole population that we need treatments for. Yes, we need orphan drugs. These people deserve their drugs. But yet, when we develop those, we aren't developing drugs to treat other conditions that are important. Mental health, low back pain, so many others. Because orphan drugs have a lot of incentives to develop them. They make a lot of money. Of the top five selling drugs currently, five have an orphan designation. So you can actually make more money because of the incentives, which we'll definitely get into, but because of the incentives that have been put in place supporting orphan drugs, then you can like coming up with something for lower back pain, which I don't even, some ridiculously high percentage of the population has. Yes. Wow. So for orphan drugs, there's a lot of reasons. So I'll go through the Orphan Drug Act. It was passed in 83. It's an interesting story because there's this guy, Quincy MD, if you ever saw the show, mm -hmm. back in the 80s. And he ran a whole series on people with orphan diseases back then. And he went in front of Congress and told him his story and brought in someone with an orphan disease. And that's the way policies get passed. You have this very emotional moment they see a patient from them and they're like, we're going to do the right thing now. In no way, shape or form, I think are MI and I, I am going to speak for you too, my friends, mm -hmm. <laughs> suggesting that it's not important to ensure that people with rare diseases get effective treatment options. I, I, that's not the point. But it almost sounds like if pharma is incented to such a degree to come up with treatments for orphan diseases and that they're not then incented to cook up drugs for things that a huge swath of the population suffers from. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. People with rare diseases need treatments. Well, when you have a couple of years where half of all your drugs approved are for orphan drugs and there's some of the top selling drugs in the country to that treat very, very small populations, that seems really out of whack with where we need the treatments going and how much we be spending on healthcare. I mean, for the Orphan Drug Act, it's passed in 83, and part of it is they get special grants for it. 
They get help with the research design. They get tax credits for clinical research. They get help with protocol assistance. They get waivers from the FDA. So there's all these push incentives. Push incentives are things that are aimed to help develop a drug through the government. The government does it. And then on the other side, once you do develop it, we have pull incentives. One of the big pull incentives for orphan drugs is that they have exclusivity more than other drugs. It can stay in the market longer. They have seven years as compared to five years. And that's a big incentive. I mean, the other really big incentive for orphan drugs isn't even in the Orphan Drug Act. Companies, because they're small populations, can really charge whatever they want for the drugs and no one's going to say anything. They're small populations, a lot of insurers, employers, they let it go under the radar because it's, it's a patient population you're not going to make mad because you don't want that feedback, so you allow the price. Okay, we've got three things in play here that could be determinants relative to, you know, when the C-suite of a drug company sits down and scratches their head and determines which drugs to focus on and, ca- and attempt to develop. They may take a look at push incentives, which are available. They may take a look at pull incentives, which are available. And then they also may take a look at exactly like you just said, what is the potential price point that the market will bear? So why don't we go back and take these in order? So back to the beginning and and talk about push incentives. You know, like, how does this go down? Is there like a, you know, most wanted list? You know, the government's like, we want, you know, insert some drug category here because somebody has, some epidemiologist has determined that this is a really high priority. Um, Unfortunately not. I mean, there's certain categories that have incentives like orphan drugs to come to market that get more push incentives and pull incentives. There's other diseases called neglected diseases where you get a voucher if you bring one to market they can use to speed up the development of another drug. That may be a little confusing, but we really don't have this list where we say, okay, if you develop this drug in this category, you will get an extra push. What we do have is the FDA has different ways of approving drugs. If your drug is determined to be breakthrough, you know, there's something very different from it and something on the market, you get special considerations from the FDA. If your drug is seen to be much better than other drugs, when it gets close to approval, you get a shorter time for the approval process. And that's worth enough to a pharma company? Like, that's a big deal. It can be worth a lot to a pharma company. So the pharma company is all about how much money you can make once it hits the market. Pharma companies have both market exclusivity given by the FDA and they have patents. So they get a patent when they start the preclinicals, right? So the less time you spend in the R&D and getting it to market, the more time you have on the other side, to make the money, that's critical. That's always a big decision point. The shorter your trials are, the less patients you have, the more it's de-risked, the longer time you have after you hit the market, those are all things that are telling you how much money you can make. So we're still talking about push incentives here, where where basically there's something that's just, you know, kind of handed to a pharma company at the beginning in order to incent them to develop a certain drug. Is what's going on with COVID right now an example of that, where, you know, there was millions, maybe billions of dollars that were handed over to, to some of these manufacturers? When we're talking about COVID right now, I think more about the pull incentives and the push incentives. So the pull incentives for it is the government already agreed to buy the drugs 
when they hit the market by a million doses of the drugs. Okay, so so I'm just making sure I have it straight in my head, the difference between push and pull. So push is the government basically says, here's a whole lot of money in some fashion. You know, either they're doing right. it by, you know, a grant or tax waivers or shortening the time through the FDA. But basically, they're just like, here's some money because we want you to develop a drug in this high need category. A pull yep. incentive is on the back end where, you know, if you've got a guaranteed buyer, that's also something to contemplate. <laughs> That's huge. When you have a guaranteed buyer and you know you can make that profit, it you still have to get approved. But once you get approved, you, you have a massive profit-making machine. And that's huge for any of these drugs. These contracts, they know once they hit the market, there's billions just waiting for them. They just have to get across that line. So that's a very big pull incentive. The thing about pull incentives usually is their market incentives. They're usually not paid for by the government. So push incentives are from the government. Pull incentives, which we do a lot of, like exclusivity, more time on the market, things like that are paid for by the market. So the government doesn't have to put that in their budget usually. That's a advanced market guarantee, right? We don't do a lot of that. There are other advanced market guarantees for Bill Gates has set up one for malaria. He set up, I will buy this many doses. And that pulls them to want to develop it because then they know they can actually not just develop it, but make a profit on it. But the biggest pull incentive is IP protection. So no one else can compete against you. A patent or exclusivity is the biggest pull incentive because then you know when you get on the market, you have a monopoly on that drug, you can make a ton of money. So let's go back. You you had mentioned antibiotics at the top of this conversation. So so let's go back there. I mean, because obviously that's going to be a pressing need. How are push and pull incentives, you know, like, are they being applied to this essential use case or, you know, what's going yeah. on there? Yeah, especially with antibiotics, there's a number of push and pull incentives. There's a group, BARDA and other government agencies actually help fund some of it to a much greater degree than with other drugs that get grants and, and tax write-offs. These drugs get really high amount of grants. So it doesn't cost a drug company that much to bring it to market. So basically what's happening is somebody, you know, patient advocacy group or BARDA, which I'm assuming is a government agency. Yes. They're pulling together some funds. However, they're determining what the greatest areas of need are. And they're basically handing over a chunk of change to a pharma yep. company and saying, look, you need to use this to develop an antibiotic. Yeah, specifically for the antibiotic the company has developed. They will go and say, we will help the clinical development of this drug. We'll give you a grant for it. And I know that's also happened in other areas. Like, for example, in the development of the cystic fibrosis products, there yeah. were patient advocacy groups that fundraised millions of dollars, patients as well as their, their families and, and friends out there on the street, tin cupping for dollars yeah. so that they could give it to a pharma company to develop a product. Yeah, Vertex was a very different... And very controversial what happened there because it's actually a patient group. And the patient group, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, gave Vertex $150 million over 12 years to help get the drug to market. It was a decent drug, helps people with cystic fibrosis. And then the Vertex turned around and charged $300,000 per patient for a year for it on a drug that a foundation and orphan push incentives help get to market. That seems, yeah, I'm not sure what the adjective is. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation made a lot of money off of it. 
because the money was paid back to them. I don't remember it stocks, but they got a lot of money out of it. Uh, and I don't know if there was any way in it for them to say to do anything with the price. It doesn't sound like it. So patients in the U.S. would get it. Even at $300,000, very few insurers are going to deny it to these patients. You just don't for rare conditions. And so that's part of the pull incentives for orphan that aren't laid out in laws or said they can make a lot of money for these diseases. It sounds like, you know, there's just so many areas in healthcare where there's, it's all engine and no brakes. You know, like every stakeholder in the mix has an incentive to drive up prices. And the only ones who could potentially function as the brakes are like literally patients, (laughs) sometimes employers that cystic fibrosis example, if you go online, there are heart-wrenching tales from patients who went around, collected, did walkathons and all kinds of stuff to collect money from friends and family to donate to get this drug made only to not be able to afford the drug when it came out on the market. And it's a huge financial, like at those kind of prices, it becomes financially more than toxic. It seems like this is just another kind of like unfortunate consequence of, I don't know, what? It's the way the market works. I mean, the other part of this is, so there's even more than push and pull incentives. NIH, I think, has $38 billion, right? And so what the NIH decides to fund as far as research is what's going to get developed. If they put a ton of money into some of these smaller diseases you're going to get the basic molecules, the basic knowledge to develop the drugs. So a lot of times what you see, all of a sudden you see four drugs coming to the market for the same condition at the same time. And everyone's like, how does that happen? Or they call one a me too. It's like, it's not really me too. The science was developed in a laboratory in probably from the NIH funding or the university. All of a sudden the science is known. And for one time that science is known, every company races to bring it to market. And oftentimes you have four new drugs very similar in the market at the same time. Look at the migraine drugs now. We have four different migraine drugs that hit the market at the same time. Everyone learned the knowledge from a lab at the same time. So part with drug companies, they do tremendously important work translating the science into a drug you can take. But they don't do the basics research. NIH does the basic research that really funds all this. And politicians, to some point, determine what the NIH puts their money into. So that is the core of what drugs get developed too. What are we going to do here? You know, so we've got obviously a situation where, you know, again, we still have the antibiotic problem. What's your, you know, if you were king of the world, what would we be doing, for example, in antibiotics or, or maybe what's currently being done that you are a big proponent of? And then how would you extend that good work forward? Antibiotics are a very different kind of example because... If you have an antibiotics developed for a resistant pathogen, once it gets to market, you don't want to use it. You want to save it only for the few cases you need it. So once it gets to market, you're not going to make a profit on it because you don't want it used, you want it reserved. So how do you delink the sales from a company making revenue on it? So not trying to push over use of the drug to make a profit, they just get a profit just because they brought it to market. And those are interesting incentives also. There's been talk about this for years. There was once a delinkage fund or a prize fund where the drug company brought it to market, they got a prize of 
two to three billion dollars, depending on what they thought the worth was the drug is. And then they didn't do the sales for the drug. It was distributed as needed. Is that a theory or did that actually happen? That's a theory, but there's currently a couple models that are probably going to start working that way. In the UK, they, they have a pilot program called the subscription model for antibiotics, where if a drug company brings a drug that meets a criteria, then the government will buy it and the government will have control of passing it to who needs it. I mean, the drug company will also have some sales, but be mostly through the government, then subsidizing it so it doesn't use when it gets to market. So it's just like on-demand manufacturing. So basically, we're going to give you a chunk of change and you're going to do on-demand manufacturing. Whenever we need it, we're going to tell you and you're going to give it to us. Yeah, and there's a lot of groups around this. There's a group called CARB. There's a lot of antibiotic groups focused on and they call it the fire extinguisher theory, right? So you want the fire extinguisher there when you need it, when the fire starts. Otherwise, you don't use it. And that's what we're paying for. The fire extinguisher to hang on the wall so when we need it, we can grab it. And in the U.S., we have a bill coming up that's... There's been a lot of talk about the Pasteur Act. And it's kind of the same thing. It's guaranteeing a drug gets developed. They get paid just for developing it. And there's a subscription model. So the subscription model is something separate then? So a subscription model, when you think of Netflix, you buy a set price for Netflix. So you can watch as much Netflix as you want. You don't get charged for any extra use of it. Anything after you pay that price is free. And how does that relate to the fire extinguisher theory or fire extinguisher model? Fire extinguisher, you pay for it up front, but you don't pay it when you use it. So you've got two ways that you can go about incenting antibiotic production at this juncture. One of the ways is this fire extinguisher model. The other way is a subscription model where the government says, all right, you manufacture this, we're going to pay you whatever dollars per month. And, you know, if we use the drug, great. If we don't use the drug, you still get paid. Right, exactly. But there are some subscription models in the U.S. already. Two states have them. Louisiana has it for hepatitis C. And Washington state also has it for hepatitis C. And the subscription model for hepatitis C actually came from Australia first. Where Australia said, we have all these patients with hep C. We want to get rid of it and eliminate it. The treatments are great. So they did a deal with pharmaceutical companies where they put up $5 billion. And they said, for this $5 billion, you will give us all the hepatitis C treatments we need to cure our population. That's the deal. Subscription, $5 billion, you give us as much as we need to do it. And they made huge progress in that country. There's still issues. They still have people to treat. And so Louisiana and Washington State looked at the same and did kind of the same model, where they went to the manufacturers. In this case, they had the manufacturers bid for the contract for the states. And so they put up so much money, and then the manufacturers give them as many doses they need for the upfront price. Yeah, so it sounds like it's more like a mortgage payment than a subscription fee. (laughs) Yeah, It's just an upfront payment, so you get what you need for that state. And the problem with hep C is there's a lot of people with it, and very few are being cured in the U.S., especially if Louisiana doesn't have a lot of money. If you look at what it would cost to treat all the people in state, federal employees in there, you would have had to eliminate, like, all the high schools. You'd have one choice, either cure the people or eliminate high schools, right? That's what the budget looked like. So they're like, we can't do that. We need to do something where the drug companies are going to make money because we put the money up front and each dose of it doesn't cost much. So they're still getting money for it. 
but the volume problem is an issue. We're going to cure the people, drug companies make the money, and we get to cure people for a set price. It really works for everyone. Is that something that feasibly could extend, or maybe what would it take to extend that, you know, like back to that cystic fibrosis example, is it feasible that this model could be extended across, you know, is is it limited by therapeutic category in some way? Fibrosis is a different situation because you have no competitor. They're the only one in the market. So they can charge whatever they want for as long as they want because there'll be demand, even if people can't get it. Hep C was different because they're competitors. And so the country and the states had negotiation leverage. With Vertex, there could be some point where you come to agreement where it's like, we're going to give you this much, but then everyone gets treated. And that would be a beautiful thing. But they have no incentive to do that because they've got no competition. That They can make more money just charging whatever they want and you know, being okay with the fact that some percentage of patients with cystic fibrosis can't get the product. Well, it depends on who would come up with that money. That'd be a lot of money to come up with. In the case of Louisiana and Washington State, this was for their Medicaid population and their state employees that they would have to pay for. If you're talking a drug like cystic fibrosis that's covered by insurers, you know, employers, but and Medicaid and Medicare partly, then that group together would have to come up with agreement and say, this is how much it's worth. What would be fair to me is saying, you're making this much money now. We will give you that same amount of money, guaranteed, but you have to give us extra volume for that money so everyone's now treated. I don't know the cost of goods for the Vertex drugs. They might be expensive. So with the volume, expenses may go up. So you may have to include that in there or pass through for the cost of goods. But to me, it would work because Vertex would no longer have to worry about how much they could do. They would not have to worry about the marketing. It's like you're guaranteed to get it. You just have to make more so we can distribute it. Let's just assume that we have a you know situation where we've got a an employer or we've got a government policymaker, and they're thinking about trying to enact one of these models where you pay at the population level for your whole population to get covered as opposed to paying a patient at a time. Where do you start with that? I mean, we sort of do that for childhood vaccines where the CDC buys childhood vaccines and then distributes them. So that that's a very good model for how childhood vaccines are made and paid for and distributed. And there's a study, if I could go back and remember it, where everyone thought there'd be less childhood vaccines when the CDC started buying them in bulk and distributing them. But actually, vaccination uh, development even increased. So it didn't have a bad effect on it. Dr. Bruce Rector, where can people go to find more about your work? I'm on Twitter, of course. My Twitter handle is at Rector. They can go on my LinkedIn profile. There's information there. The paper is called Grounding Value-Based Drug Pricing in Population Health. Dr. Bruce Rector, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week 
the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.